You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, A little delayed, but nonetheless. Hope it all was uh, a good uh, break for everyone here and you're all rested, ready to go back to things Monday morning. It's not too much longer and we'll be resting again for Christmas, but it was a nice break, wasn't it? And uh, especially if you are managed to avoid that little bug going around. I don't know how many have been touched by that with your families, but the Steffel family and our extended family kind of got touched by that a bit. Um, I'm glad, though, that uh, my daughter and son-in-law, Hannah and Tyson, are here with us this morning. Myself, my son, and one of his sons got sick, and so uh, I've been keeping my distance from everybody this morning. I think I'm on the mend, though. Hopefully, this thing will come out okay. If it doesn't, you'll give me plenty of grace. Amen? I appreciate that. You said it. For 20 weeks, four months, we have been uh, in a series entitled, She Who Is in Babylon. It's a rather odd phrase. It's found only one place in the Bible, and it's the concluding chapter of Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, where he uses that phrase to describe the church in Rome in his day. He was writing that epistle from Rome to Asia Minor, and in 1 Peter 5.13, he says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, in other words, believers with you, sends her greetings. And so this was a title that he uses to describe the church at Rome, she who is in Babylon. And he does this to make a comparison. And that comparison was that believers living in Rome in the first century, by extension, believers living in St. Lucie County in the 21st century, are in many ways similar to the Israelites exiled in Babylon in Daniel's day. We are both exiles in the sense that we are living away from our ultimate home. The Jews were living away from Jerusalem, exiled in Babylon. We are living away from our ultimate home in heaven, and that is your home. Philippians 3.20 says, the moment you believed, your citizenship changed, and you've become a citizen of heaven, and that is from where you await the Lord Jesus to return. We are both um, the Israelites in Babylon and us living under oppressive cultural power. The Jews lived under the power of Babylon. We live under the spirit of Babylon. And we are both awaiting the day that we'll finally be able to go home. The Jews waited 70 years and went home. We are waiting for the Lord's return. But until then, like Daniel in Babylon, we are still on a mission. And so in the light of all of that, We posed this question, how are we to to live on mission? And that led us to the book of Daniel because Daniel was one of the first exiles from Israel to be deported to Babylon. And his life story in the first six chapters of this book offers us a great deal of wisdom on how we are to live as exiles, as faithful exiles in our mission in our Babylon today. Daniel shows us how to trust God under an oppressive government. 
Daniel shows us how to trust God in the fiery furnace and in the lion's den. He shows us how to respectfully say to the world, we are not going to bow to your idols. We will not disregard God's Word just so we can belong, so that we won't be canceled. Do what you will, but we're not going along with your program. We will not dishonor God. Daniel showed us that behind this battle that we find ourselves in between good and evil is an unseen battle between good and evil spiritual beings. And the way that we live our lives and the way that we pray are a part of that battle, an integral part. And through Daniel, we also discovered, among many other things, who will win this battle? Who will win this battle? One day, the writing Daniel said is on the wall. One day Jesus will return and he will judge the wicked and reward the righteous and rule over all of creation as the Prince of Peace forever and ever. Now, something interesting happens at about that point in the book from chapter six, and this is a way of, this is kind of a little review. When you go from chapter six to chapter seven, the book of Daniel changes. It goes from the story of Daniel's life in Babylon to the visions that Daniel had during his life in Babylon. And uh, moving from the sixth to seventh chapter is almost kind of like starting or beginning a new, new book altogether. In spite of that, though, the theme remained the same. How do we live on mission in our Babylon, because you see, to live on mission in Babylon, you have to know that God is sovereign over the future. And that's what Bible prophecy is. That's what Bible prophecy shows us, is that God is Lord over the future. History is not governed by human decisions or natural causes alone. Above all is a sovereign God working out his plan for humanity, even when we can't perceive it or understand it. And you need to know that. The Jewish exiles in Babylon had forgotten that. And they said, and in fact, the psalmist records them singing this or saying this, Psalm 137, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? See, if you're going to sing the song of God, if you're going to have the joy of God living in the spirit of Babylon, you have to know that overall God is in control and that He is sovereign, that He is in ultimate control over the times and seasons of the human race. And that, as Daniel said in his prayer in chapter 2, He raises up kings and He sets down kings. He's in charge of it all. And that's exactly what the second half of the book of Daniel reveals, God working out His plan by raising up and removing kings of the major empires of the world, demonstrating his control over the times and seasons. And ultimately, at the exact time ordained by God and prophesied in the book of Daniel, that, that plan beautifully unfolded. And our Savior came into the world, and Daniel tells us that just at the right time, our Savior will come into the world once again. And this, time, this is our confident expectation. This is our hope. This is the anchor for our soul that keeps us steady as we make our way through our Babylon. Now, that's a review. Here we go. Last part of this series. As we come to the end of it, there's one more thing that, that stands out to me about Daniel. 
In fact, I think it did the whole time. We never really talked much about it, but that is that Babylon never became home to Daniel. After the Babylonians invaded and, and conquered Jerusalem, Daniel was enslaved and exiled in Babylon. And even though he lived there for over 70 years, he never assimilated. He never became Babylonian. And to appreciate that, you have to understand what Babylon and the city of Babylon was like in Daniel's day. It was the most beautiful, glorious, powerful, secure city in the world before the time of Christ. Nothing was its equal. It was a place where everyone wanted to live. Everyone wanted a condo in Babylon. It was a great place to be in real estate. It's a place where everyone wanted to live, where the rich and famous lived, where the jet setters lived. It was a place of great pleasure, of great power, of wealth, a place of great innovation and technology too, but it was also a place of the most wicked kinds of idolatry. And that was a complete culture shock for a young Jewish man about the age of 17 named Daniel. Here he is going from one worldview to a completely different worldview. It was a a total culture shock for him. And when Daniel arrived in Babylon, he was forced to accept what some would consider the opportunity of a lifetime. Daniel was one of the few young men who were brought over from Israel that were chosen because of their exceptional qualities to serve in the king's royal court, in in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And uh, the problem, though, is that this involves some extensive education in Babylonian worldview. Daniel had to learn what it was like to be Babylonian. He had to learn everything as if he was Babylonian because the intention of Nebuchadnezzar was to make him Babylonian, to totally sever his ties with his Jewish roots. So he had to learn about Babylon literature, astronomy, astrology, architecture, and the worst of all, about all of the religions in Babylon. He had to become an expert in all of these pagan religions. He did that, though. He excelled. He learned the facts, but those lies never got in him. He learned what he needed to learn for his job that he was called to do and even placed there by God, but he never let the lies get into his heart. This indoctrination program also included a lot of luxuries, the best of food and wine and clothing and living quarters and entertainment. All of it was intended to make him dissatisfied with the simplicity and austerity of of the Jewish way of life he had known. And then on top of all of that, he was given a new Babylonian name that honored one of the Babylonian gods. So here you are, totally immersed in this thing, working for the system, working for the man, and yet you never became like the man. You never became like the culture. To me, this is the most amazing thing about this entire book. In spite of it all, Daniel never assimilated into Babylonian culture. He was in Babylon, but not a part of it. He was in the world, but not 
of it. And that is very similar to where we find ourselves today and in our culture. God calls us to live in this world but not be of the world or like the world. And from that place of commitment to God, Daniel was able to influence the Babylonian culture tremendously. His legacy goes all the way to the wise men who visited Jesus. He had a tremendous impact on on that culture as a whole. There's a common belief among Christians today that to reach culture, you have to become more like culture itself. Otherwise, people won't be very much interested in you unless you as a church or as a Christian take in or become more like the culture around you. And that kind of thinking, of course, is showing up in the churches in all kinds of ways, and I don't have the time to get into that this morning, but if you're aware, you know that this is happening. It's not hardly a week goes by and you don't slump your head once again disappointed in the spiritual leaders that are part of the body of Christ and how they are leading. But Daniel demonstrated that this whole notion of becoming like culture to reach culture is absolutely backwards. If people are drawn to church by the accommodation of culture, it is likely they are not being drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit. You you see where when you say, I have to become more like culture to reach culture, you just said, bye-bye, Holy Spirit. You have no power to draw anybody. And yet, the only way you're ever saved is because the Spirit draws you. Does the Spirit need culture? No. Daniel never assimilated, but neither did he isolate. And this is even more amazing. He couldn't, obviously, because of his job. But it wasn't like he, you know, he, he went somewhere on a mountain at a faraway place. He didn't isolate. He served the purpose of God right in Babylon. He, he lived as an exile away from his home. He was always longing for his home. But he never, he never assimilated Never assimilated with Babylon. He never let it get into him. He stayed on mission. And I think he did that because he always kept in mind his real home. And I think that's something for us, too. Is that we would always have within our thinking our, our ultimate home, our real home. And this model of living is not unique to Daniel, but actually the way that God calls all believers in Jesus Christ in this present age to live is those that are away from home. I mean, from the first moment you prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, the Bible says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship, our home is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. And as long as we are in these bodies, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, we are not at home. Subtle, but there. We are not at home home. The moment you believe, you go from being at home in this world to being away from your home in heaven and exiles like Daniel was in Babylon in this world. Now, you've never been to heaven. You're not an exile in the sense that you used to live in heaven and you came to earth for a while, and then you're going to go back to heaven. No, but when you believed, supernaturally, heaven became your home more than any earthly home could ever be to the point that sometimes, even though you've never been there, you're homesick for heaven. Have you ever been homesick for heaven? Have you ever said to yourself, oh, even so, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) 
All right. I'm laughing a little bit about that, but we've also said that in very serious moments. Lord, would you just, it'd be great. I'm, I'm so through with this world and through everything in this world. Now, there are times you don't think that way at all. There are joys in life, obviously. But every once in a while, you come to that real clarity and you say to yourself, this world is not my home. And I am suggesting to you, as the Bible does, that you live that way with consistency, even when things are going great. Because at the end of the day, any great thing can never satisfy you in this life. I don't care how great it is or how wonderful it is or what a blessing it is. Eventually, it will lead you to dissatisfaction because nothing that was created was created ultimately with the the design to give you ultimate satisfaction. It always wears out. It always comes to an end. It's enjoyable, and God says we should enjoy it, and He gives us all things richly to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6. But there's a point at which enjoyment becomes idolatry, and when it does, it will always disappoint. And when it disappoints, it leads you back to that same place. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Come, Lord Jesus. Once again, I have failed to learn this truth. I put my hope in something created that it could really, really make my life a lot better, better than you. But again, I am reminded that it can't, and all I want in life is your presence and your word and your goodness. That's all I care about. You can have this, like the old hymn, you know, you can have this whole world, just give me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So when you become a Christian, you go from living as like a permanent resident in this world to being a temporary resident. You go from being a friend of the world to being a stranger in the world. You go from being at home in this world to being an exile in this new exile status fundamentally changes the way that we live and how we look at things and what's truly important to us. And it also changes the way, you know, that we deal with disappointment and disillusion and mistreatment and loss and, and suffering. One of the most powerful biblical truths, again, that you will ever whisper to yourself is this world is not my home. If it was my home, I would rightfully be despondent or even bitter. But this world is not my home. I have another home where all of my expectations of the way things should be will perfectly be met. Perfectly realized. And this is what Peter is getting at when he addresses the believers as as exiles. And I think, you know, for the most part, most Christians in America today don't really view view themselves as, as exiles. And I think even fewer churches understand that they are really a community of exiles. And it's my belief that if the church in America is going to remain resilient and is going to remain faithful in the years to come in our now post-Christian culture, we are not a Christian nation. That was a while ago. You have to get used to the reality right now. We live in a post-Christian culture that is, that is becoming more and more obvious as, as the days and weeks and, and years roll by. And if we're going to continue, if we're going to live faithfully in a post-Christian culture and continue to be salt life this world, we have to rediscover our biblical identity as exiles and our communal identity as exiles gathered together. And this whole idea of exile and homecoming is not just found in Daniel or in 1 Peter. You see this all the way throughout the Bible. This narrative, whether you realize it or not, is 
is, is, is woven all the way throughout the Bible from, from Genesis to, to Revelation, the narrative of exile and homecoming. It's the way that God presents um, His relationship with us between God and, and mankind. In the beginning, what? We were created to live in the garden of God, perfect home, right? Unfortunately, in Adam, we all rebelled against God and His goodness. We turned away and we left the garden of God to be independent on our own. That's what sin is in essence, is I want to do things my way and not your way. And as a result of that, sin exiled us from our true home. And this is where the story of all human beings begin. We sin, we've rebelled, we, we are exiles living away from God, living away from the garden of God. But through the cross of Christ, through the gospel of Jesus, the Father is calling spiritual exiles back to Himself through the message of the gospel. And when we believe it, we are rescued from our spiritual exile and we are forgiven all of our sins. And one day, the Father will call us out of this place of cultural exile, physical exile, into the home that Jesus has prepared for us. John 14, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's a real place, and that's the ultimate home. And ultimately, he'll bring us back to that place which metaphorically we call the garden of God. We're going back to the garden. We left the garden, but we're going back. We're exiled from the garden, but we're going back. It's in stages, first spiritually through faith in Christ, one day physically in the new heavens and the new earth. And this ultimate homecoming is made possible because Jesus was exiled for us. Think about it. He willingly left his home heavenly home, and he was born into the world, not in the hometown of his parents and his relatives, Nazareth, but in a town that was away from his hometown called Bethlehem. And soon afterwards, he lived the, the uh, first few years of his life in exile in Egypt, the first two years. So he's born away from home. He lived away from home. And Matthew 8.20 said, during his whole ministry, he had no home of his own. Matthew 8.20. Had no place to lay his head. He had no place that was his home. So you're born away from home. You lived away from home. You never had a home. In a sense, he lived a life of exile on the earth. And at the end of his life, he was crucified just outside the gate of Jerusalem, which in Jewish culture was a sign of exile and rejection. He was exiled on that hill. And then even more on the cross, he cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he saying? My God, my God, why have you exiled me from your presence? Adam was exiled from the garden because of his sin. The nation of Israel was exiled from the promised land for their sin, but I have not sinned. Why have you exiled me from your presence? The reason is, is because Jesus took our place on the cross and He experienced our exile from God, from God caused by our sins so we could be brought back home 
to God and ultimately back home to the garden of God. And when we believe in Christ, we are forgiven our sin, we're made God's children, our spiritual exile comes to an end once and for all, but our cultural exile has not and will not come to an end until we go ultimately home to the place Jesus has prepared for us. We are still exiles when it comes to our home. We're no longer exiled from the Father. We're adopted into His family, but we're still exiled from our final home, and as such, we're called to live with the understanding, this world is not our home. This world is not my home. This world is not my home. And this, this whole living in exile narrative, again, is, is uh, present throughout all of Scripture. You have Adam, exiled from the garden, right? You have David, living in caves, exiled from the king's palace where he was supposed to be. You have the apostle John, exiled on the island Patmos. You have Daniel and the Israelites, exiled from their homeland, living in Babylon. And you could go on. You see this all the way through the Bible, and and these and more provide examples and a model of how God's people are to live in this present age. And the New Testament presents this model to us with three words, three metaphors, if you will, strangers, pilgrims, and aliens. Strangers, pilgrims, and aliens. This first metaphor as strangers, we find in the life of, of the patriarch Abraham. Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, he, Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger living in a foreign country. Well, why? I thought the promised land was it. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Why did he live that way in this land that was supposed to be home? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. What was he looking for? We have another metaphor here for the garden of God, the city of God. He was looking for the city of God, not the city of man, as Augustine said, but the city of God. He was in the promised land, and the promised land was his home in a sense, but he lived there like a stranger in a foreign country because he was looking forward to a superior home, an ultimate home. In other words, the promised land wasn't really the promised land. It was only a type or a foreshadowing of the ultimate promised land that is to come. A land and a city whose builder and maker is God, the city of God. Now, the second exile metaphor was first used by Abraham's grandson, Jacob. When Pharaoh asked him how old he was, and he answered this way in Genesis 47, he said, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. Now, to us, the word pilgrim reminds us of the folks that came over on the Mayflower in the 1620 and celebrated the first Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, when you hear the word pilgrim, that's what you think of, right? And uh, so there they are enjoying the first Thanksgiving, I guess. Hope you enjoyed yours, by the way. But the word pilgrim is also, and actually used another way. Technically, it means someone who journeys to a foreign land, who's actually journeying through it. And that's, that's who we are. We're pilgrims and we're on a journey. We are not home. One more metaphor, Peter uses it to describe 
our condition. In 1 Peter 2, 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens. This is not Area 51. Alien. Aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So what do you have here? Listen to these words. You have alien, stranger, pilgrim, exile. And they're all used synonymously. They point to one who is a temporary resident or a traveler in a foreign country passing through on his way to his ultimate home, to his home country. The thing about a pilgrim is that they have a different mindset. That, you know, they, they have a different mentality about life than a permanent resident does. Pilgrims don't get attached to the country that they're traveling through. And why is that? Well, they have a destination in mind, and they're very much looking forward to getting there. And so they don't get distracted by the land or the, or the country that they're going through. If they pass through a scenic area, they might admire it. That's beautiful. You know, but they don't automatically think, I should move here sometime. If they stop at a really nice hotel, they don't start hanging pictures on the wall and settling in. There's a transient mentality. There's there's this feeling, just like you have in a hotel room, this isn't home. See, but we need to have that all the time. They have this kind of transient mentality of, of simply passing through on their journey. And this is the Daniel model for living that Peter wants his readers and us to understand and adopt. And that's why he says of the church, she who is in Babylon, she who is in exile, she who is away from her ultimate home, she who is just passing through this life. We are not home yet. To the contrary, it seems like the model of Christianity in our American culture tends to be more focused on the here and now. Kind of looking at life as permanent residents rather than pilgrims passing through. The permanent resident model of Christianity asks this question, what value can Jesus bring to my pursuit of life on the earth? There's a whole corner of Christianity that that's the model right there. What value can Jesus bring to my life? as I pursue my life on earth. The pilgrim model, on the other hand, says, how can I more fully glorify Jesus while I live in exile, looking forward to my ultimate future home in heaven? So see, what we're, we're called to live is pilgrims, and if we do, it's going to empower us in three ways. It'll be very helpful. If we live as pilgrims, we'll be able to have peace and joy in trials. Why, why, why? because this world's not my home. Look, if this was my final home and I still face trials, then I would have something to complain to God about. What's, what's going on here, God? You promised me this, 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 and this, and I'm in this trial right now. But it's not my home. It's not my ultimate home. And so when we go through trials, we need to remind ourselves we're not home yet. Peter said something like that in 1 Peter 4.12. He said, don't think it's something strange or unfair, or undeserved is happening to you when you experience difficulty. Why? Why would he say that? Because we're not home yet. The day when everything will be resolved, when everything will be made right, has not yet come. You're not home yet. Secondly, this mindset will empower you. If we live as pilgrims, we'll not fall away from God and suffering. Because when you consider your life sometimes, 
um, or the lives of loved ones or humanity as a whole, every once in a while can be tempted to be saying something like this, God, why? What's wrong with this? Why is it happening this way? Where are you in all of this? See, I think there's a point at which every believer will ask this question. Why? Where are? Or how long? And there are answers to those questions, not the least of which, of course, is we're not home yet. This isn't home. If I was in my final home and there was still suffering in the world and in my life, then I would have something to question God about. But we're not home yet. Creation is yet to be redeemed. Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Waiting what? For the ultimate. For the new heaven and new earth. But one day, it's you know groaning in childbirth right now. One day that baby's going to be born and the new heavens and new earth will come down out of heaven. And what a glorious day that's going to be. Then everything will be right. Then everything will be made perfect. And in the light of this truth, Paul says, I consider that... Uh, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Number three, if, if we live as pilgrims, we'll be more able to resist sinful desires. And why is that? Well, because what awaits us when we finally get home, get home is infinitely, infinitely superior to any pleasure in this life. Anything this world has to offer. You know, I read a writer years ago who said that our problem is not that our desire for pleasure is too strong, but that our desire for pleasure is way too weak. It's so weak we settle for the pleasures of this life instead of waiting for the infinite pleasures that will be ours one day in the presence of the Lord. Our problem is not that we desire too much, is that we desire too little and therefore we are fulfilled with the small pleasures of this life instead of waiting for the great pleasures in, in heaven. The Bible says in Psalm 16 and 11, in your presence there's fullness of joy. Your right hand, pleasures forevermore. It's kind of like this. It's like a game show. You know, you've seen these game shows where you've got two prizes to choose from. And the first, I don't know, I'm just throwing this out there. Let's say it's $1,000 it's and you think to yourself, I could use an extra $1,000. I always think when these guys are winning that kind of small money in these shows, that'll be enough to get you home. That's it, you know. But it was an experience, wasn't it? Yep. And, and so you think, well, that'd be great. I know that that 1000 is mine. It's guaranteed. There could be nothing after this, only to find out that behind the second door, there's a million dollars, right? So what, what, what sin is, it's basically saying, I think the $1,000 right now could provide me with more satisfaction than the million dollars in the future. That's what it is. Scripture clearly says the pleasures of sin last only for a season, and they end in misery. But to the contrary, God's pleasures, the pleasures of God, last forever, forever, forever. Age upon age, millennia upon millennia upon millennia. Ephesians 2.7 says that God will pour out His grace Age upon age upon it, more grace and more grace and more grace. Never ending, infinite. Think of the universe and how big it is. Just think of that for a comparison. I mean, we're, you know, we, since Hubble, we know the universe is actually bigger than we thought that it was. 
You know, we thought there was uh, basically a billion star systems with a billion stars in them each. Now, that, I can't even get my mind around that, right? We're just one solar system in a, in a single star system or galaxy, and we, we can barely make it to the moon. We're just, uh, I forget who said it, but that blue pale dot in a vast ocean, an endless ocean of stars, billions upon billions of galaxies, not solar systems, galaxies, each with over a billion stars. Well, you know what they found through Hubble? Now they say it's way more than we ever thought, and that it's also expanding at a speed far greater than we ever thought. Yeah, it started when this one person said, let there be light. But they'll never admit that, of course, and that's why they need to find life on another planet. They have to, because without it, evolution falls apart. It falls apart on its own, but nonetheless, that, that's, their, that's their, their golden cow. Oh, we've got to find something on some planet. Now, this is the only planet. This is the one God put Adam on. And this is the one Jesus Christ came to, and this is the one Jesus Christ will return to. And this is also the one that will be completely remade. This is the planet God's working with, okay? Don't worry about anywhere else. Then why all that other stuff? To show you how great He is. To show you when I say that for age upon age, you, he's going to show you nothing but grace after grace after grace. Think of the universe. Why? Why so big? Why? What's the reason? I mean, the angels will look up at the stars and say, what a great universe. We know that it was infinitely beyond that, almost infinitely anyway. It seems infinite. We really don't know where it ends. Could be. But nonetheless, you have this huge cosmos out there just saying one thing to you. I'm real. And I've got a plan for your life. And I've got everything that you need. And I am all that you need. Look what I did. You can look at it with your eyes or through Hubble, and it'll say the same thing. Glorious, beyond glorious. And I love you with an infinite love, and so much so that I sent my son to die for you on a cross so you could be forgiven your sin and have everlasting life. So anyway, when you compare the pleasures of sin and the pleasures of waiting in heaven, there's no comparison. And what you do is if you're in your right mind, see, we're out of our right mind. There's a degree of delusion that's set in when we think this world gives us more. That's delusional, spiritually delusional. <laughs> And so you have to keep yourself in the right mind or with the right worldview or with the right mindset, a biblical mindset. Because if you just for a second saw that curtain, door number two pulled back a little bit, just a little bit, and all of a sudden this beaming light came out of it, greater than the sun. You would go, I'm waiting for door number two. Get out of my face, devil. I'm not going to fall for door number one. I'm going for door number two. It's worth the wait. I can see that. And in this life, 
He'll give me everything I need for now, but the greater part of it is coming later on, and it will be forever and ever and ever, and it makes everything worth a while. So the way to enjoy God's material blessings without turning them into idols, the way to endure suffering without losing hope, the way to seek holiness in this sinful world is live as pilgrims on their way back home, not as permanent residents who are hanging up their pictures in the hotel room. Live the pilgrim life. So let's close with how do I live the pilgrim life then? Number one, real simple, three things. Number one, remember where you came from. First Peter 2, where most of this, the body of this teaching has come from. First Peter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Hello. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you then, on the basis of that, do what? As aliens and live as aliens and strangers, right? So, so what's the basis here to live as aliens or strangers or pilgrims in this life? How do we do that? How do we, how do we stay on track? How do we not get off track while we're running our race? Peter just says this, remember where you came from, alien. Remember where you came from, pilgrim. Remember at one time you were living in darkness. You didn't have a clue. You didn't know up from down spiritually. God intervened into your life by His sovereign grace. You didn't belong to God. You were because of sin alienated from Him. You had not received mercy, but by His sheer grace alone, God chose you, and He called you out of darkness into His light, and now you've received the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, and now you're a child of God and part of the people of God. Remember that that wasn't always that way and would have never been that way unless God said, knock, knock. And you said, and he even get, gave you the, the ability to turn to him and say, who's there? I want to know more about you. Number two, be thankful for what you've been given. He says, First uh, Peter 1, Peter writes, live your life as strangers. There's another metaphor, in reverent fear. Well, how do I do that, Peter? Well, you know that it was not, here's how you do it. You know, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you're redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. So what Peter's saying is here, you'll be more empowered to live the pilgrim life when you more fully recognize and rejoice in the preciousness of the sacrifice that Jesus offered for you. So we have something more valuable than anything else in this life, than any earthly blessing could ever be. You could take all the wealth of the world and it, it, it's not even a drop in the bucket compared to the price that Jesus paid to redeem you from sin. I understand that as a nation, we are 33 trillion in debt, and we only have 20 trillion dollars in circulation. It's not a very hopeful future, is it? 33 trillion, you can't even get your head around that. I can't, what's that? Nobody knows what that is, it's just a number. And that's what it is to them too, it's just a number. But you could take that 
and all the money of every other nation in this world and put it in a pile, and it would pale in comparison to the price that the Father paid for you to be forgiven and called His child. What grace. God gave you, and really using money is not a really accurate way to do that because this is infinitely beyond money. God gave you what was most valuable to Him, most valuable in the universe. I mean, think about it. Was there anything in heaven that could compare in value? God sent His Son to redeem you and bring you out of spiritual exile to bring you home to His heart. That's the gospel. And the deeper that gets into your, into your life, the more and more that you understand the love of God revealed in the gospel, the more and more you'll be empowered to live the pilgrim life. To live with joy, but not need all of that. To stay on track. Not be confused by all of that. To stay on mission and not grow weary. It's the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. And the last way that we can stay on mission in our Babylon is look forward to what is to come. I've talked a lot about this. I just want to read you two verses. I love this verse. For this world, Hebrews 13, is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. For here, we have not a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And therefore, Paul says, in the meantime then, Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above and not earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So how do I set my heart on things above? Well, Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's how. That's the first step. That's the, that's the way this thing starts. It's by believing that I have sinned and I have fallen short of God's standard of righteousness. My sin deserves punishment, but God in His love sent His Son who became a man to die on a cross for my sin. Personalize that for your sin, for all of our sin. And that when I believe that He did that for me, the Bible says, you are saved. And that all who believe that, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There'll never be a person who in faith turns to the cross and says, I believe that. I believe Christ died for me. There's not a person that believes that that will remain unforgiven. He forgives everyone, every sin. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. That meant he paid the whole price for us. It's all paid for. You have to redeem it, though. And the way you redeem that is through faith in what he's done. Romans 10 says this, believe in your heart. God raised Jesus from the dead. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said earlier in John chapter 14 that he was the only way to the Father. No one goes to the Father except through him. What does that mean? We have to be forgiven. The price has been paid. We just have to accept the price by faith. 
We do that by faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, you should. I highly suggest it. I urge you to. There's a whole lot in the balance. If you've never, I just want to lead us all in a short confession on this Thanksgiving weekend. Let's say it together. I believe in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for my sin and that he rose again to make me right with God. I believe that. I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. This day, every day forward, a child of God by faith.